This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Welcome to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. My name is Dustin Smith, and I will be your host. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. We've got an excellent one for you, episode 261, entitled Emmanuel in Isaiah and Matthew. We're still in our study that is ongoing in its attempt to understand how early Jews and early Christians understood the concept of the Messiah by looking at the prominent passages within the Old Testament, that is, within the Hebrew Bible. And we come across the book of Isaiah, which has several passages we could look at, but I really felt we needed to address this particular passage involving the woman who will be with son and bear a child, and that child will be named Emmanuel. Of course, this has a long history of being understood as a reference to the Incarnation, particularly when it comes to Matthew, and that strong tradition has crept its way into the interpretation of the book of Isaiah, whether it belongs in there or not. So here are some of the questions I would like to explore in this week's episode. First, what did Isaiah's oracle concerning Emmanuel speak to during Isaiah's own lifetime? Second, does the prophecy concerning Emmanuel in Isaiah refer to the same event as we see in Matthew's Gospel? And lastly, how does the symbolic name Emmanuel define the person and ministry of Jesus? Let's find out on this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Our first point today is a close look at Isaiah chapter 7. So I think it's best to actually read this passage and to give comment on it as we go, as opposed to reading it ahead of time and then going back and talking about the significant verses. So we're going to be looking at the beginning of chapter 7, starting in verse 1, and going all the way down past the particular oracle that we're looking at and ending in verse 16. So we got a decently sized passage to look at. Let's begin. Now it came about in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, the king of Aram, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to wage war against it. But they could not conquer it. This is the first verse. So we already can tell the outcome of this event before it even happens. We know how the oracle is going to finish. The author is very careful here to set the stage, but also to tell us how it is going to conclude. Now this passage owes a lot to its parallel in 2 Kings chapter 16. And so Isaiah, of course, indicates to us that the alliance between these two kings, between the king of Aramea, which is Rezin, and the king of Israel, that is the part of the Holy Land involving the ten tribes in the north, P, 
Pekah is their king. They've made an alliance together, and they want to come together and besiege Judea and Jerusalem in the south. Verse 2. When it was reported to the house of David, saying, The Arameans have camped in Ephraim, his heart and the hearts of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake with the wind. Obviously, they are afraid of this political threat. Then Yahweh said to Isaiah, Go out and meet Ahaz, you and your son, Shear, Yashuv, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. Yahweh tells Isaiah in this passage to go speak to the king of Judah. This is the Davidic king, King Ahaz. He is one of the descendants from David's line. And we also learn from this passage that Isaiah has a son. He has a young son, and his name is, in Hebrew, it's Sha'ar Yashuv, which means a remnant will return. This is very important, as we're going to see later in the passage, because the naming of these sons with symbolic names is quite prominent in this passage. So, Isaiah is told to go and to speak to King Ahaz, the Davidic king. And we see in verse 4 that Yahweh tells Isaiah that he should say to him, Take care and be calm, have no fear, and do not be faint-hearted, because of these two stubs of smoldering firebrands, on account of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the son of Remaliah. So Isaiah is to inform the Davidic king that you shouldn't be afraid, don't be faint-hearted, be calm, take care, and it indicates that these political threats that are quite scary to the city of Jerusalem and its inhabitants, they're nothing more than just these two stubs. They're not violent beasts or powerful armies. They're just stubs of smoldering firebrands. They're not going to last. And the passage goes on. Because Aram with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has planned evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrorize it, and make for ourselves a breach in its walls, and set up the son of Tavil as king in the midst of it. So we can see here that they wanted to go and to conquer Jerusalem. They wanted to knock down the walls, and they wanted to install their own king there. Passage goes on, verse 7. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And then the author comes in and offers an editorial mark, saying that within another 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered so that it is no longer a people, and the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you will not believe, surely you shall not last. So the prophecy here is that these two nations are not going to last, and that their alliance is not going to be successful. 
and that within 65 years, Ephraim is going to be shattered. And Isaiah, the editor, or the people that came after Isaiah that pulled together all of his prophecies and put them into a written form, finalizing them into the book of Isaiah as we know it, wrote these editorial marks alerting the reader what was going to happen to Ephraim. By their time, they would have understood the reality of that situation. Verse 10, Then Yahweh spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from Yahweh your God. Make it deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test Yahweh. Now, these two verses sound as if Ahaz, the descendant of David, is very pious and very humble. He's not going to test the Lord. He's not going to ask. However, when we look at the parallel passage in 2 Kings 16, and we learn a little bit more about the history and how Ahaz actually responded in this situation, we know that he has made a secret alliance with Assyria and Assyria's king. So he's not trusting in Yahweh. He's trusting in making this compromise with a pagan superpower. Verse 13, Then he said, Listen now, O house of David. Is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men, that you will try the patience of my God as well? So we get this strong response from Isaiah, revealing, of course, the false piety of King Ahaz. And Isaiah calls out, both Ahaz and the entire court. Verse 14, which is our passage of focus. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Now we need to spend some time looking at this passage because not all is as it appears. When we look at the Hebrew, there's a little bit more clarity that we can actually give to this passage. And clarity is actually needed because of the hundreds of years of tradition of interpreters reading Matthew's story back into Isaiah in an anachronistic way. And this has allowed interpreters to remove Isaiah from its context and to only situate it based on presumptions that they bring from reading Matthew's gospel, whether those interpretations from Matthew are correct or not. So we need to let Isaiah speak for himself and stand on his own two feet before we go and look at how Matthew interprets Isaiah. So what can we see? Well, we can see that uh, the Lord here, which is Adonai, is ascribed as the Lord himself Lord himself, he is going to give a sign. And the designation the Lord himself indicates that the Lord is a single person. God is one person, even though Adonai is technically a plurally majestic reference to God. He is ascribed as the Lord himself. That'll be important as we look a little bit later into this passage. And he says that there's going to be a woman who is going to bear a son. The woman here is described in Hebrew as the feminine noun Alma. And this word Alma refers to a generic young woman. 
She doesn't have to be a virgin based on the word Alma, but she might be, but she doesn't have to be based on this particular word. It's much more generic. So here's the question. Could this woman be a virgin based on what we see in this particular passage? Now we see that this woman is described with the Hebrew adjective hara, and the adjective indicates one who is pregnant. Now, to be fair, there's a little bit of ambiguity with this passage, but typically adjectives describe something that is currently true about a particular person, which would indicate that this young woman is pregnant. She is with child. Not that she is going to be with child, but she is with child. My translation already gives the impression that she will be with child, but that's not necessarily true with the Hebrew. It suggests that the pregnancy of the woman is already a reality. She is pregnant, but she is about to give birth to a son. So we can already see here that Isaiah 714 is not a prediction of the birth of Jesus. Rather, it is the announcement of something that is already in the works at the time that the historical prophet Isaiah is uttering this oracle. Now, there's been a little bit of speculation regarding whose wife this pregnant young woman actually is. And in the context, the only adult males that are present are Isaiah the prophet and King Ahaz. Now, since Isaiah has already introduced his first son in the chapter, who has a symbolic name, and there's another child that bears a symbolic name who is going to be born at the beginning of Isaiah chapter 8, who probably also belongs to Isaiah based on the exegesis of that passage. This particular child in 714 seems to likely also be a child that's to be born to Isaiah, to his wife. It's just speculation, but I think it's the most likely suggestion that we actually have. But we don't know for sure. So we got the phrase, the child is going to be called with this symbolic name, Emmanuel, meaning with us is God. I know a lot of times it's translated as God is with us, but the L is at the end of the word. And so the Emmanu means with us, and then you have L, which is God. With us is God. Not so much God is with us, but with us is God. The stress there, of course, is the fact that we are here, and with us is this important person. With us is God. The stress is on the people, not so much the God who is with them. Now, the symbolism in the context indicates God's assurance that he is on Judah's side. He is on the side of the Davidic kingship. He has not abandoned his people. He has not cast Judah off. He has not left them to their fate of these alliance between Israel and the Arameans. But one thing is for certain, that the symbolism does not mean that God, or some supposed 
second person of the Godhead, is going to become incarnate in this child. Why is that not possible? Because it's completely impossible. We have a few reasons as to why that is. First of all, Isaiah 7.14 has already defined God as the Lord himself, indicating that God is one person. So there's no other persons alongside God himself to hypothetically become incarnate. Second, this symbolic name, Emmanuel, with us as God, is very similar to other symbolic names representing God's commitment to be with his people, names that we see within the Old Testament. For example, Ethiel, which is a Hebrew name meaning with me is God, Ethiel, is the name of multiple persons within the Old Testament. You can see that in Nehemiah chapter 11, verse 7, and Proverbs 30, verse 1. And the announcement of the God of Israel's commitment to his people is also made in the Psalms. For example, a passage like Psalm 46, verse 6-7 indicates that the nations made an uproar, the kingdoms tottered, he raised his voice, the earth melted, Yahweh of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. And a few verses later, in verse 11, we have much of the same. Yahweh of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. This is not an indication of incarnation. It's just a reassurance that God has not abandoned his people, even though they are being attacked by foreign powers and the nations. God is their stronghold and their refuge. So the reference to God being with us as a symbolic name in Isaiah 7.14 is not rare or unique. It is among other commonplaces where God is reassuring his commitment to his people in the midst of political turmoil and wars and rumors of wars. Now Isaiah goes on and says a little bit more about this child who is to be born quite soon. Verse 15, he will eat curds and honey at the time. He knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. For, before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. That's verses 15 and 16. So basically, within three to four years of this child being born, when he's at the point where he can refuse good and evil, and he's not being weaned by his mother, he's able to actually eat curds and honey, the lands of these two opponents will no longer be a political threat to Ahaz. That's the assurance from Isaiah the prophet. So, when we look at this passage, we can see that it seems to just indicate another child to be born with a symbolic name, and the symbolic name is a reference to God's commitment to be with his people, despite the uncertainties that are taking place among them. It doesn't seem to be a prediction of the future Messiah. And what's interesting is that even though this particular series in the Biblical Unitarian Podcast is looking at Old Testament passages that functioned as predictions of the Messiah, we have absolutely no evidence within Second Temple Judaism or in the Targums 
or on the Dead Sea Scrolls, that Isaiah 7.14 was read and understood by Jews to predict the coming Messiah, the anointed king. There's just no evidence of that. So what that tells us is that when we see it in Matthew's gospel, Matthew is doing something new. Matthew is doing something innovative. And that's all the more reason why we should turn to Matthew and look at how he understands and interprets Isaiah 7.14. That moves us to our second point, the use of Isaiah 7.14 in Matthew chapter 1. Now, we don't have time to read the entirety of the genealogy and all the 40 names that indicates that Jesus is a biological descendant of Abraham and David, indicating his place among the people of God, his place among the descendants of David, and of course, his humanity being a biological descendant of these famous figures. But we can start in verse 18 and we can talk about the birth of Jesus and how the prophecy of the virgin who is with child is going to answer a particular problem. So, starting in verse 18 of Matthew chapter 1, it says, Now the birth of Jesus was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. It's Matthew 1, verses 18 through 23. So what can we see here about Jesus? Well, of course, after the 40 names in the genealogy, we already know that Jesus is a fully-fledged human being. He's a member of the human race with no qualifications to that. The only difference we see is that he does not have a human father. God is his father. He has a human mother. That is Mary. And then we learn that Jesus has a beginning. He has a genesis. Matthew 1.18 says the birth of Jesus is as follows, and the word for birth in Greek is Genesis. Verse 20 indicates that Jesus is begotten. That which has been begotten in Mary is of the Holy Spirit. Conception is actually not even the technical term that's there because conception is the act of a mother, but begetting, which is what this Greek verb means, that's the act of a father. How do we know that? Because it's the very same verb that was used 40 times earlier in verses 2 through 16 to indicate the act of a father bringing into being their own son. Abraham became the father of Isaac. Isaac became the father of Jacob. Jacob became the father of Judah. The same verb is used here, indicating that Jesus was brought into existence. He was fathered. How was Jesus fathered? Well, by the creative power of God's Holy Spirit. 
The Spirit, which is the creative, extended power of God, is what brought Jesus into existence. That's what we can see in verse 20. So Jesus did not consciously pre-exist his birth, according to Matthew. Jesus began to physically exist in the womb of Mary. So we get to verse 23, the Emmanuel phrase, which what's interesting is that even the Greek, when it translates what this means, because it says Emmanuel, and then it gives you the translation, which in Greek is methimon otheos, literally that is with us is God. Not God is with us, but with us is God, which is exactly what we saw in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. The emphasis there is the same. It's with us is God not putting God at the beginning of the sentence for the stress and the emphasis. The reminder is that we are here, and with us is now God and God's presence. So it's an interesting point that we can see there by looking at both languages, looking at the Greek and the Hebrew. Now, while the history of Israel was at its lowest point based on Matthew's genealogy, because Matthew's genealogy is very careful, according to Matthew 1, 16 and 17. It indicates that there were 14 generations from Abraham to David. So those are two persons in the high points of Israel's history. There were 14 generations from David to the Babylonian exile. The Babylonian exile is, without question, one of the lowest points of Israel's history. And then 14 from the Babylonian exile to Jesus. So they are just coming out of this low point in history. They're now arriving at the Messiah. And so the miraculous birth of Jesus is going to assure the Jewish people that God has not abandoned them. God has not left them in exile, whether physical or spiritual. Even though they are under Roman rule, God has not abandoned them to this fate. And of course, God has not abandoned Joseph's premarital tragedy of finding out suddenly and embarrassingly that Mary is pregnant, not by Joseph himself. The dream is a reassurance that this is not a tragedy, but God is actually with them. So although Judaism did not regard Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14 as a messianic passage, Matthew does seem to be the first person to do so. Now we talked in the Hebrew of Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14 that the Alma is technically a young woman. The young woman could be a virgin, but she doesn't have to be. And in the passage, it seems as if she's not a virgin. It seems as if she's already pregnant, she's already with child, and she is about to have a son. And that son is going to receive a symbolic name. Now, the Septuagint translator, over a hundred years before Matthew was even written, translated the Hebrew noun Alma into the Greek noun Parthenos, which does mean a virgin. It's a much more narrow interpretation of what the Alma means. And that is what Matthew picks up on. Matthew actually picks up on this passage. So it's not Matthew taking Isaiah and ripping it out of its context. Matthew's actually taking 
a translation from the Greek Bible that was already there. Christians didn't make that translation. It was already there before Christianity existed and before Jesus was even born. And Matthew takes that passage and is able to draw some very important significance to the birth of Jesus. But what is absolutely clear is that the circumstances surrounding Matthew's Emmanuel are quite different than the circumstances that surrounded Isaiah, the 8th century prophet. Isaiah was talking to Ahaz, the king, about the threat of invasion. But Matthew is reassuring Joseph of the legitimacy of Mary's pregnancy. Isaiah the prophet was probably talking about his own wife bearing a son. Matthew is talking about Mary, who actually is a virgin. That's all fine and dandy, but this whole podcast episode is trying to deal with the Emmanuel name. What does it mean? Jesus here is called the symbolic name with us is God. Not God with us, but with us is God. What does that mean? We can't explain it away. We can't ignore it. We can't act like it's not there. There are no textual variants that suggest that it's not original to the text of Matthew. It is 100% original. What could this mean? What does it mean that with Joseph, Mary, and this child is God? How can it be that the Father, whom Jesus locates, according to the Gospel of Matthew and in the Lord's Prayer, as being in heaven? How can the Father who is in heaven be said to be with them? And I think that this symbolic title, since it can't indicate that Jesus is God, because we just learned that Jesus is a human being who was brought into existence by the creative power of God's Spirit in the womb of Mary. This title reflects something far more nuanced. Arguably, it reflects Matthew's own wisdom Christology, the Christology indicating that Jesus is portrayed in terms of the wisdom of God. What is the wisdom of God? That is the wise interaction with God's creation. And several times in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus speaks with a self-awareness that he is God's wisdom. He is the embodiment of wisdom. So here are some examples, not even an exhaustive list. Matthew chapter 11 has Jesus inviting people to take his yoke to those who are weary laden, and he promises them rest. And this is an exact quote with some of the very same Greek words from Sirach chapter 51, which was written over 200 years before the Gospel of Matthew, indicating something that wisdom would do. They are to take wisdom's yoke upon themselves, and they are promised rest for those who are weary and heavy laden. So Jesus seems to speak of himself and see himself as the wisdom of God there at the end of Matthew 11. Earlier in Matthew 11, verse 19, Jesus is accused of being a glutton and a friend of sinners, but he defends his own actions by saying that wisdom will be vindicated by her deeds. And in doing so, Jesus is clearly referring to himself. That's Matthew 11, verse 19. In chapter 12 of Matthew, Jesus notes that something greater than Solomon is here. And the thing that's greater than Solomon is, of course, Jesus referring to himself. This is in Matthew 12, 42. Now, when he tells the story, 
He tells the story of how the Queen of the South came from the other side of the world to hear Solomon, but not Solomon particularly, but to hear Solomon's wisdom, the wisdom that Solomon has. Where did Solomon get this wisdom? He got it from God. Solomon had God's wisdom. And so if Solomon spoke the wisdom of God, and if Jesus is greater than Solomon, then this indicates that Jesus now possesses this wisdom in a much greater fashion. Jesus now claiming to be the bearer of the wisdom of God. That's Matthew 12, 42. In another passage, this is in Matthew 23, 34, this has an important parallel with Luke's gospel in Luke chapter 11, verse 49. Here's how the parallels function. Matthew says that Jesus indicates, quote, I will send you prophets, some of whom you will kill, end quote. So Jesus says that I'm going to send you prophets, some of these prophets you're going to kill. Now, Luke's version in Luke 11.49 says that the wisdom of God says that I send prophets, some of whom you will kill. Did you notice the difference there? Luke's version has wisdom uttering the statement, while Matthew has Jesus himself saying the statement. Clearly, Matthew interprets this saying as Jesus being wisdom. So Matthew has a very clear wisdom Christology, and I think it's likely that Jesus, bearing the title Emmanuel, is demonstrating the presence of God with us because Jesus is the embodiment of God's wisdom. And remember, the wisdom of God in Judaism is a personification. To say that Jesus embodies wisdom is not to attribute to him personal conscious preexistence. Jesus doesn't have any of that in Matthew because he was just brought into existence based on the miracle birth involving the Holy Spirit. To say that Jesus is Emmanuel and to suggest that Emmanuel is interpreting Matthew's own wisdom Christology is to say that Jesus is now the locus of God's wise interaction, God's wise presence, and the wise involvement of the Creator with his own creation. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. Join us next week as we continue to look at the prophet Isaiah by looking at his messianic branch imagery. Isaiah has a few passages where he talks about the branch imagery. We'll look at those passages next week. Please look forward to our next episode. If you enjoy our podcast, please consider supporting us as we aim to promote the sound truths of the oneness and unity of God and the humanity of Jesus. You can support us for absolutely free by subscribing on YouTube and iTunes, by giving us an honest review on iTunes, and by sharing your favorite episode with your friend. If you'd like to offer a donation, please check out the episode description for a link to PayPal. The Biblical Unitarian Podcast is produced and edited by Dustin Williams. I'm Dustin Smith, your host. Until next time, please take care.